We're continuing our series called When in Romans, and we are going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now, I want to give you a fair warning. I did my best during first service to be as quick as possible, and it took 45 minutes. So I'm going to do my best to continue uh, to speed it up, but I want you to follow along and because today we're talking about some really big things and really um, important things to our faith. So I want to take us back to the year 1976. Raise your hand if you were alive in 1976. So about half of you good. I was not. Um, I was five years to yet to come. But in 1976, let me remind those of you who lived and inform those of you who didn't what was going on. Gas was 59 cents a gallon. The average uh, yearly income was $16,000 a year. Minimum wage was $2.30. Rocky was in theaters, which I'm very happy about. Um, NASA unveiled its first space shuttle, and Jimmy Carter was elected president. That's a long time ago, huh? In fact, it's a very long time ago when you think about sitting in a prison cell from 1976 until March 28th of 2019. Clifford Williams Jr. and his nephew Nathan Myers sat in prison from March, I mean from 1976 to March 28th, 2019. They were convicted of murder of Jeanette Williams and Nina Marshall. They were convicted of murder and they maintained their innocence for 42 years. In fact, as some of you might know, if you, ever, if you guys are into this kind of thing, um, there is a group called the Innocence Project. How many of you guys have heard of the Innocence Project? And it was founded by author John Grisham. And their job is to seek to look at cases where people have maintained their innocence over the years and have stayed in prison. And if they feel based on the case and based on the evidence and based on what technology we have now versus what technology we had then, they will take on the cause and fight. And on March 28th of 2019, Clifford Williams Jr. and his nephew Nathan Myers were released from prison, innocent men. They waited 42 years to hear from the judge, not guilty. They were acquitted of all charges. Now, can you imagine how that must have felt to sit in prison, to be on death row, in fact, when they were released, waiting and waiting and waiting for someone to believe you? Now, it should come as no surprise that these two men were minorities, it should come as no surprise that in the time when they were convicted, most of the evidence was circumstantial. I mean, there was no real evidence to support that they did the crime. But if you've done any research, you can look back and see that over and over and over again, and it's not just in our country. Catherine and I just listened to a, a, a podcast thing called, I think, Body of Proof, about something that happened over in Scotland, a very similar situation. People, every day 
are being convicted of crimes they haven't committed. Yet there are people who have committed crimes that aren't being convicted of them. And so these men sat in prison for 42 years. And now what will they receive now that they have been justified by the court? Because that's really what we're talking about. Justification. They've been declared not guilty. They've been rendered innocent by the court. There's been a decision made. These men have been justified. They are innocent. The court gets to pay them $50,000 a year, up to $2 million, depending on how long they live, for the false imprisonment. When they went into prison, Williams was 34. He is now 76. And his nephew was 18 and is now 63. Now put yourself in his shoes. Think about what that must have felt like. Well, I can tell you this is how Myers, the younger one, felt. He said, right now I feel blessed. You know, I'm, because I'm with friends. He says, and I'm not bitter for what happened to me. Because the Lord Jesus Christ made me to be the man that I am. How many of you could say the same thing? You sat in prison for 42 years for a crime you didn't commit, starting at age 18, your whole life taken away from you. Family members died, loved ones died, having very little contact with the outside world, not very many people believing your innocence. And then he says, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. This tribulation, this trial I went through, I'm not bitter about because the Lord Jesus Christ made me to be the man that I am. That's what Paul's going to talk about today. Justification, the implications of justification, and how persevering under tribulation produces results. All right, so before we get there, I just want to remind you of what the difference between righteousness and justification are. If you forgot, last week Andrew said this way, Righteousness describes how God sees those who have faith. Despite our sin, we are clothed with Christ's moral perfection. In short, righteousness is being seen as just by God or upright. Uh, Justification is the state of being saved from the penalty of sin. Jesus was substituted for us and he took our penalty. Justification is being seen as innocent or not guilty by God. So this morning we're going to look at that. And we learned at what kind of faith justifies. What does justifying faith in Jesus look like? Romans 4, 20 through 21. It says this about Abraham. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. That's justifying faith. The only faith that justified is full persuasion. There's no room for doubt in that faith. I'm not saying you can't have doubt in faith, but you cannot have doubt in the fact that God has the power to do what God has promised he would do with regards to salvation specifically in this sense. That is the faith that justifies us or has us declared innocent by God. See, we have our own innocence project, right? Jesus' perfect performance under the law of God makes us righteous because he was punished for our unrighteousness with the wrath of the Father, which was poured out on him on the cross. So now Paul says he's going to move on to justifying faith does this, or there are implications of being justified. So in Romans 5.1, it says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Therefore, 
Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. As Paul writes this, he's making it clear that there are implications for those who have already, through faith, been justified. This is a qualifier. He says, having been, meaning past tense, having been. This is in the past. You who are in Christ, having been justified by faith. He is not talking to those who have not yet been justified. Yes, if they get to the point in their life where they're justified, this will apply to them. But he's specifically talking to the believer who has been justified by faith. And this is important because it's something to both look forward to and something to use as self-examination, right? He says the first implication of justifying faith in Jesus is that we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Let that sink in. It says, you who are justified by faith through Jesus are now at peace with God. Meaning there's this positional transfer that took place. You were once over here and now you're over here. You might say though, why do I need peace with God? Like why would peace with God be something that was even necessary? You might say, I was never at war with God in the first place. I never had a problem with God in the first place. You might say, yeah, I wasn't living a righteous life. Or you might say, yeah, I fell short of God's glory, but I wasn't even at war with God. I, I didn't even believe in God. In fact, I wasn't trying to have a problem with God. I just wasn't doing what God wanted. And you kind of see this with Pilate, right, at the trial. And Pilate says, look, if y'all want to crucify him, fine. I don't find any fault with him. He's not getting away with that. Ambivalence is not something that God will accept. Okay, we need peace with God for a reason. Because the issue isn't whether you saw God as your enemy. The issue is really that God determined you as his enemy. Does that make sense? It's kind of like there's people in your life right now that may see you as an enemy. Right? Just because you may not acknowledge that tension doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And when it comes to God, if God says, you are my enemy, it doesn't matter how you feel about it or what you think about it. You are his enemy. That's how it works with God. God gets the final say. And there was a point in time when we were his enemies. And so there's these two positions. There's a position where you're God's enemy or there's a position where you're part of God's family. You're either for him, against him. There is no in-between in a world of pluralism and relativism. There are absolutes, and you're either on God's team or you're not. That's what God says, and that's what we believe. And there was a time in everyone's life where you weren't on God's team. That's why peace is important, because there is a fight going on, and there needed to be peace made between us and God. Um, how does this happen? How does this happen? Reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us that same word of reconciliation. So when I talk about conflict with people, I talk about conflict with regards to conflict management rather than conflict resolution. Why? Because not everything can be resolved. In fact, even the, the biggest experts in relationship studies at the Gottlieb Institute will say this, 25% of all issues in a marriage relationship cannot be, cannot be resolved. I mean, you will never see eye to eye and agree. Hopefully, none of those are non-negotiable. Hopefully, they're not non-negotiable. 
but 25% of all issues will not be resolved. See, this is the problem we have with God. God will never be resolved to accept our sin. God is perfect and he is holy. He is righteous and he is just. He is wrath and he is love. God will not be resolved to accept sin. But God isn't limited by man-made things like resolution. God creates a new way and we call it reconciliation, meaning that God made a way that there could still be a partnership in spite of sin. And we see this most happen in wartime, right? When countries like the United States and Russia have teamed up at times. Obviously, we've never really resolved our differences. But there were periods in time where we reconciled our differences and worked together as allies. That is what reconciliation is. There's a greater enemy. There's a greater threat. There's a greater purpose. We're going to set aside our differences and move forward together. That is what God has done through Jesus Christ. He has reconciled himself to us so that we can move forward together, co-laboring in the work of the kingdom, namely spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of the Father. Amen? You with me this morning? Reconciliation. We are at peace with God because he reconciled us. The second thing we learn about this receiving peace is that there is a struggle or a war going on. If there were no conflict, if there were no struggle, there would be no need for peace. You would already be at peace. So the people that say, there is no issue, I got, I got no beef with you. You do you, I'll do me. That's not how it works. There is always tension. There is always the threat of harm in a relationship. There is always separation caused by sin. Paul makes it clear to us what the real war is when he's telling us about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. In verse 12, he says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the worldly forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. There is a war going on. I could go through a whole sermon just reading passages that say, be sober and alert. The enemy's out there. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He's like a lion prowling around looking for somebody to devour. 24-7, 365 days a year, there's a fight. How often do we even plug into that? Which is why peace doesn't seem to be a big deal. Because we don't really see this war that's going on. We don't see the need for peace because we don't accept the battle that's being waged in heavenly places. The battle between good and evil. We love good and evil fights, which is why we like things like, I don't know, the Hunger Games, Lord of the Rings, uh, Star Wars. Anything big that has this epic good and bad motif. We like it. Of course, the, all the superhero movies, right? There's the bad guy, Thanos, and then there's the awesomest guy ever, Iron Man. Right? There's this battle going on. And we like that because we inherently get that there's good and evil. What we don't do is focus on the fact that it's in the here and now, and it's present at all times. And my fight isn't with you. Satan may use you, just like God may use you. God, Satan could use me. In fact, that's what Jesus says when he says to Peter, Satan, get behind me. He's not calling Peter Satan. He's saying, well, right now you're being an agent of Satan. There's this war going on. There's a need for peace. Which leads us to this next passage. It says in Romans 5, 2, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. See, the second implication of 
a justifying faith in Jesus is that we've been introduced into the grace in which we stand. This is amazing because through justifying faith, we now have access. I like this word, access. We now have access to the unmerited and unearned favor of God himself. And this gives us both the courage and the strength to continue in our spiritual journey. Remember the second half of 2 Corinthians 2.16 that says, among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. See, there's this initial point where salvation happens, but there's this continuation, this ongoing salvation that comes, and this ongoing are being saved in the present tense. That happens by faith through grace. So this justifying faith that we have in Jesus, making peace with God now allows us, because we're now on God's team, we're positionally in his army, we now have access to the treasure trove of God's grace to equip us for this work we're doing. The primary agent at work in our salvation is the grace of God. And if we forget that, we forget everything. It's not us. It's God's grace. That is at work in salvation, and it's not a one-time deal. It's a lifetime deal. It's an eternity deal because grace is part of who God is. The third implication of justifying faith in Jesus is that we exalt. The word exalt means to boast. And hope, the word hope means of expectation. We have an expectation of. So we exalt and hope in the hope of the glory of God. Now, this may be the most remarkable thing yet because it seems to be the most profoundly difficult thing God has done. Let's recap. God gives us peace with him, which is initial salvation, this concept we call reconciliation. There's a slide for this. God gives us access to his treasure trove of grace, which keeps us saved in the presence through constant renewal, this concept we call sanctification, Okay, there's sanctification here. God gives us the ability and the desire to exalt in our hope of his glory. This is the concept we call magnification. We're magnifying God by exalting or boasting in the hope that he is glorified. Now, you guys, I've lost you already. But listen, this is important. Because we are by nature prone to self-exaltation, this is a big deal. What do I mean by self-exaltation? Meaning we like to brag about ourselves. And I don't always mean positively. How many people know those really those people who are arrogant and boastful? You know some, right? How many people know people that have low self-image, low self-esteem? They're both self-exaltation. That's why they're called self-esteem. Having high or low self-esteem is still a sin issue. It's still about pride. It's still about self-exaltation. It's still about arrogance. It's saying, I am so important that I feel terrible about who I am, or I am so important that I feel awesome about who I am. It's self-exaltation. So for God to be able to pierce somebody's heart and change them so much that they no longer are looking to exalt themselves, either negatively or positively, and they want to exalt the hope that God is glorified, that is crazy. When you think about it, what did Eve hear from the serpent that was new? If you eat this, you'll be like God. I'm, sign me up, check me off the list. I want to be like God. Read the story. That's the only thing he said that was new information. You will be like God. We are by nature prone to self-exaltation. Most of our sin leads back to pride. 
And we may not think of it as pride because we want to say, just love yourself. Give me a break. We all love ourselves far too much. We love ourselves far too much in a very unhealthy way because we love our flesh more than we love God. Self-exaltation. So I like this, this phrasing. It says, you see, it's truly a remarkable transformation for a sin-sick, self-centered, broken, condemned human to be transformed into a just, innocent, grace-dependent person who hopefully boasts in God's glory. But wait, there's more, right? Verses three through five. And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proving character, and proving character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit he has given us. The fourth implication of justifying faith in Jesus is that we exalt in our tribulations. The word tribulations is a form of pressure that we feel or an affliction in our life. So you see, for a sin-sick, self-centered, broken, condemned human to be transformed into a just, innocent, grace-dependent person who hopefully boasts in God's glory is remarkable. But to get that same person to boast in their affliction... That's even more remarkable. You might ask, how could this be more remarkable than what God has already done? That's a great question. Before we get there, I wanted to help define what this looks like. How do I boast in tribulation? How many of you guys know who Horatio Spafford is? Horatio. Okay, well, he lived in the 1800s. How many of you guys know the song, It Is Well With My Soul? Yeah, everybody, right? Okay, so Horatio Spatford wrote the lyrics for this song. This hymn was written after the traumatic events in his life. So let me tell you a little bit about Horatio's life. The first was the death of his son at the age of two. He lost his only son at the age of two. He died. The second bad thing that happened to him was during the great Chicago fire in 1871. He was ruined financially. He was a successful lawyer and had invested significantly in the property in the area of Chicago that was extensively damaged by the fire. So he's lost his son. He's lost his fortune. And that with little money he has left is now also hurt because his other business interests were further hit by the economic downturn of 1873. At which time he had planned to travel to Europe with his family. But in a late change of plans, he sent his family ahead while he was delayed on business concerning some zoning problems following the fire. And while crossing the Atlantic, the ship sank rapidly after colliding with another sea vessel, and all four of Stafford's daughters died. Son, money, backup plan, the rest of his children. Then, while at home in Chicago, he receives this telegram from his wife, Anne, who survived, and it simply said this, saved alone. Now, can you imagine receiving this telegram, saved alone, and wondering, why, God, is this happening to me? What have I done to deserve this, saved alone? So while he's rushing off to see his wife, he writes the song as the ship passes near where his daughters died in the sunken ship. That is what it means to exalt in your tribulation. 
not to hide the pain, not to hide the hurt, but also not to hide the redemptive power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the situation. No matter what he was going through, he said this, it is well with my soul. Because he knew who was at the helm. He knew that he wasn't living for this world, but the one after. He knew what his hope was in Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, the hope of salvation, and he knew that one day he was going to be reunited with his family. In fact, there was a story this week about a four-year-old kid who was kind of internet famous who had a very rare form of cancer, um, a soft-cell skin cancer, soft-cell cancer, I can't remember the name of it, but at three he began to be famous on Facebook, and they were following his journey, he passed away. He said the last thing that he said was, I love you, Mommy. And um, it said that he was talking to her a couple of days before he died, and he says, I'll wait for you. I'll wait for you in heaven. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. That's remarkable that somebody would get that vulnerable to share the most deep part of themselves and boast in it because they know that it brings glory to God. And this is hard for Christians. Because after all, shouldn't we do everything without grumbling and complaining? Philippians 2.14. Shouldn't we be living that abundant John 10.10 life that Scripture talks about? And don't get me started on the prosperity gospel in our country. See, we can hide behind Scripture. We can hide behind what the Bible says and not boast or exalt in our tribulations. Do you believe me yet that this is better? Well, let me get more direct with you. When is the last time you exalted in your tribulation? Or let me take it one step easier. When is the last time you came forward during a response time asking for prayer in a tribulation you were going through, much less to boast about it? You just want prayer. When is the last time? I'm not here to shame anybody, but I guarantee you every Sunday, every one of us should be able to respond to the message. Yet we don't do it. It's happened like five times since I've been here in two years. Five times. We don't do this well, yet this is one of the implications of justifying faith. I will boast in my weakness, Paul will say later on. There is a need for the church to step forward in faith and be vulnerable and say, I'm going through something, and God's got me in this, but I need prayer. I'm going through something, but I need you to walk beside me. I talked to Helen this morning, Helen Weaver, and she, I said, how are you doing? She said, I'm holding up. I said, the days are easy. I can keep myself busy. It's at night. Yeah, that's what we're talking about, being honest. Can you be honest this morning? Because your honesty brings glory to God, because God is good all the time. And in your worst affliction, God has shown up. And you could say it as well with my soul. I'm going to tell you a little bit about this concept. He goes on to say this, that we exalt in our tribulations because of this. There's results of exalting in tribulation. Because tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proven character. And proven character brings about hope. And that hope does not disappoint. Let me tell you a little story. So I ran a marathon December 31st, 2016. How many people have run a marathon? Okay, me and Nick. Nick is significantly thinner than I am. Um, so this marathon is it's kind of a neat story. Long story short, I don't have much time, is that I went on a weight loss journey for about a, 
a one and a half year period, lost 100 pounds, which I've gained mostly back. But back in 2016, I had only gained about half of it back. And so in October that year, I ran five miles five times a week, and I ate about 1,600 calories, and I lost a, a grand total of three pounds. So you can imagine I threw that out the window because that was a lot of pain and effort that wasn't getting results. And then I had this bright idea, why don't I go run a marathon? And I got a free entry because I know uh, some people at Team Run Like the Wind. And so my idea of training for that was, oh, I'll get a couple runs in. So I literally ran twice in the month preceding. One of them was a 16-mile run that felt pretty good. So I was studying, doing some research on how fast should I run this based on my size, based on my pace and all that, and said 11 and a half minute miles. Okay, I can do that. Get there race day, getting ready to race. My friend that ran with me, I said, hey, I need to do like 11 and a half. She's like, no problem, we got this. So we start running, and if any of you have run, you may, I use this Nike app, and there's this girl that shouts in my ear whenever I hit a half mile and a mile and kind of tells me my pace, how long it's been. So we get to mile one, and she's like, 10 minutes and three seconds. I'm like, oh, this doesn't sound good. It's kind of fast, but I don't want this girl to pass me up that I'm running with, so I keep running, right? So by the time I hit, like, mile 10, I'm, like, hurting, you know. My body's starting to hurt, and I'm starting to be like, man, this is way too fast. This probably wasn't a good idea. And um, I take this step, and all of a sudden my leg gives out. Now, we run off electricity, basically, and you can short out. You run out of electrolytes, you can short out. So what happens is my legs start shorting out. I'm like, what's going on? I, I can breathe fine. Yeah, I'm sore, but this isn't a big deal. I can push through this. I'm mentally tough enough. I go to take a hard step, and I almost fall over again. I'm like, okay, I'll walk for a little bit. I must have done, overdone it. So I'm walking, and, and I, got, you know, I get to walk, jog for the next two and a half, three miles, and now I have another half the run in front of me. I'm like, I'm going to have to walk 13 miles. You know how long this is going to take? But not only do I have to walk, but slowly I'm getting, I'm looking like this, you know, like, you know, and wobbling, you know. But I'm like, I'm going to finish this run. So I come through, and, you know, every corner somebody's encouraging, we'll be here with you to the end. Well, I wish I wasn't the one that you were waiting for to the end, but I'll do it. And so I'm drinking, like, cups full of, jars full of pickle juice, you know, all this stuff to try to get my body. And every time I'm feeling good, I'm like, oh, I can run now. I try to run, and my legs give out. Six hours and 14 minutes go by, and I pass the finish line second to last, not last. And I try to run in, and there's a video. I wish I would put it up because I almost fall again. But I learned something about perseverance. That was the most tribulation physically I'd ever been through, the most affliction. And normally I like to listen to audiobooks, sometimes a little music, but by the end of this, the last 10 miles, it was prayer, you know. God, just help me put one foot in front of the other. And there was different mile markers along the way. At the beginning, it was in eight, eight loops or something, and they were like almost four miles. And, you know, they're, like, that's when you're tracking. Oh, I passed one. I got seven left. By the end, it's like each step, you know. Oh, I got another step in. That's faith. That's what, what we're talking about here. Tribulation brings about perseverance. If you exalt in it, if you say, I'm not going to give up just because it gets hard. I was made for so much more than this. Most people are mentally weak. I know that I'm not, never have been. But I also know that there is a threshold all of us could pass, and there was a time in that race that God needed to show up and carry me through the rest of it, and he did. 
And because of that, I have this hope that God will, will be there when I need him most. And there's a lot of times in my life when that's happened. That's why this hope doesn't disappoint. And I love how Paul writes this. He says, this hope doesn't disappoint because the very love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit he has given us. It's a lot to take in. Let's move forward. Verses six through eight. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul defines this agape love of God and when it came as a time when we were still helpless. The word helpless here literally means not strong. Think about a child. I think about an infant. You know, this is my experience, and I'm just going to be honest, and you don't have to be. But children are a lot of work, a lot of selfless work, with very little yield as far as you getting something out of it for a long time. Probably till they're like 25, I would imagine. As an infant, it's give, 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 and oh, you're tired? That's all right, you need to give some more. They start getting older, and then they get mouthy, and they tell you how much they hate you, how much they dislike you. They get a little older, then they tell you how stupid you are and how they know better, and then they even throw this thing, you don't know my life. Really? I was your age once, too. Your life isn't that unique, right? And then finally, they become a little bit more sane around 25, if you're lucky, and then they have kids, and they're like, oh, yeah, maybe you were right. Why did you put up with me? That's what it means to be helpless. They are helpless without us. That's how we are with God. That is the faith walk, right? When Paul says, when I was a, when I was a child, I thought like a child. We all start there in our faith, right? We take milk and we got to move to meat. That's the walk of faith. There was a time when we were all helpless, not strong enough. In fact, even during that time, we were enemies, and God still came alongside us. God still sent his son to die so that we could be reconciled. And Paul explains just how much unlike humanity this is by giving two examples. He says, for the righteous person or the morally upright person, someone will hardly die. And the word hardly die means with difficulty. So if the person's good, not good, but righteous, if this is a moral person, with difficulty, someone might die for them. If the person's good, someone might die for a very specific person or might have the courage to die for them. You see what I'm getting at? This is a lot, nothing like us. A lot like God, nothing like us. It is unusual to die for someone else, even under the best circumstances. Most of us would hardly die on behalf of another person, even if they were good or righteous. But could you imagine dying for Adolf Hitler, for Jeffrey Dahmer, Let's make it even harder. Could you imagine dying for the person who has hurt you most in this entire world with a joyful heart? Because it says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Could you even imagine or grasp that concept? The person that's hurt you most, because that's who we are to God. The person that's hurt him most. The person that has hurt him most Think about this. We have caused irrevocable harm to God. Our sin was put on God the Son. 
while he hung on that cross and the wrath of God was poured out, the wrath of the Father on him. That's irrevocable harm. We could never do anything to deserve that or to pay that back, and we don't have to. By faith, through Jesus Christ, we have been justified. That is the gospel. That's why it's so crazy to begin with. That's why it's so powerful to begin with. That's why it changes our entire existence, because God is so much bigger than we are. We can't even fathom doing something like that. And he did it in advance. Listen to the wording. While we were yet. While we were yet sinners as a demonstration of his love. So when you question the love of God, when you ask why is this happening to me, all you have to do is look at the cross. In advance, Jesus Christ died for you. Not only died for you, but was punished for you. So that through faith, you could receive something that we could have never even conceived of without the work of God. And that is the salvation of our soul. And he gives us an opportunity to give back by co-laboring with him. Paul finishes the passage in verses 9 through 11. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, Jesus for if while we were yet his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having already been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've come back to the beginning. Having now been justified. But Paul adds a new wrinkle. By his blood. All right, so we know we're justified through faith, but the only reason, the only reason that it matters that we have faith is because Jesus' blood payment. Does that make sense? So even if our faith response was our response, it would be meaningless without the blood payment of Jesus Christ because somebody had to pay the penalty for our sin, for yours and for mine. It couldn't, go le- it couldn't be left unpunished. Then to drive this amazing news home, he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled. Much more, I love this, much more shall we be saved by his life. Paul says, if God was willing and able to make peace with us through the blood of Jesus while we were his enemies, now that we have been justified and are no longer his enemies, how much more will God save us because he lives? Do you see? This is so big. Like, if while you were his enemy, he cared that much about you, how much more does he care about you now? The bride has a special place in the groom's heart. Don't doubt that. You are important to God. In fact, you're his favorite. Not everyone's a child of God. Not everyone's the bride of Christ. You who have been justified are. That's a different relationship. You may love everybody else in your life, but you don't love them more than your spouse. That's how God feels about us. Paul says it this way. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14. So as we close today, I want you to think about three key things that come out of Jesus' continued existence or his resurrected life. The first one is just that. We have the hope of eternal life. 
If Jesus was still in the grave, we would have no hope of our own resurrection. We know this from 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. We have Christ as our mediator, according to 1 Timothy 2, 5, and our advocate, according to 1 John 2, 1. We have the Holy Spirit as our advocate and counselor, who Jesus sends in his stead, according to John 16, 7, Romans 8, 10 through 11. We have the Holy Spirit as our helper, John 14, 26, as our source of revelation, wisdom, and power, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11, and Acts 1, 8, as our guide to truth, John 16, 13, as our seal, Ephesians 1, 13, and as our sanctifier, all of Galatians 5. If Jesus doesn't raise from the grave, doesn't ascend back to the Father, he doesn't send the Holy Spirit. Jesus' life is the reason we have the Holy Spirit, which is why he can say boldly, much more, much more will you be saved. Because without the Holy Spirit, we are hopelessly lost. And without Jesus' resurrection, we have no Holy Spirit. So this morning, this morning, we have positional peace with God the Father that he gifts to us by his grace to those whom he declares righteous through faith in Jesus, whom he justifies by faith in Jesus, through reconciliation, we exalt in the hope of his glory, even in our tribulation. For the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this morning we learned of the four implications of being justified, the results of enduring tribulation, the type of love that God has given us that helps us to have unfailing hope, and the three key things that save us about Jesus' continued life. What are you going to choose to do with that? I know it's a lot. And if you want the notes, I'll give them to you. If you want to dig deeper, then get, come to a small group or ask me for the small group notes, and you can study it yourself. Listen to the podcast, and Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll have a video up at some point with, once we keep moving forward. But don't just leave here hearing it and telling me it was a good sermon or a bad sermon. Do something with what you heard. The word of God is transformative. Let the peace of Jesus Christ reign in your hearts today because we've been made right with God. Will you bow with me? Dear Father, we thank you for your glory and for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your plan. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your obedience, for your faithfulness, and Lord, we thank you that you sent your spirit, Holy Spirit, to renew us, regenerate us, redeem us, to carry us, to witness through us. And I pray, Lord, as we leave here this week, we wouldn't just be people who hear your word, but we would be doers of your word. We praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.